Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council and Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 5, The Domino Effect. As a child, when my sister and I were bored, we would pull out a tin box of tiles with colorful dots on them and set them up. We would carefully place the tiles into a swirl pattern, making sure not to knock it down before the final push. We were so fascinated that with the push of one tile, the others all fall down. This makes me think about structures. When a natural disaster strikes, it affects the structure, the people living or working in the structure, the businesses that run their companies there, and this affects the lives of those people for the time during which it is being repaired. Evan, we talked a little bit about that interdependence in the last episode. Do you think our guests this episode can share more about how some threats are linked to others? Absolutely, Audrey. You bring up an apt point. Check out Ross Stein's interview as he talks about seismic domino effects and ways to prevent them from escalating into disaster. Ross Stein is the co-founder and CEO of Tembler, a catastrophe modeling company specializing in seismic hazard and risk assessment, and they have also developed a special app that tracks seismic events. Ross, tell me more about Tembler and your mission. I am the co-founder and CEO of Tembler, whose public mission is to let anyone, anywhere, with a cell phone, understand their seismic risk and inspire them to reduce it. And we do that through a risk app that lets you understand what earthquakes could hit you and their likelihood and the strength of shaking that's likely to occur in your lifetime. And by providing articles about earthquakes as they occur around the world, so that you understand what they mean for you, scientific discoveries and scientific disasters. We're onto both of them. And then Tembler and its commercial mission is to provide the same kind of information, not just for your home, but for, let's say, a million homes to insurance companies or engineering companies. That's actually so cool. With the increased dependence on our smartphones, I feel like this app would be so useful for everyone to understand more about seismic risk. Growing up in Southern California, the phrase, the big one is coming, always worried me. Till this day, I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for the big one to come, and it can come at any moment. How can we protect our homes when the big one strikes? So right now, if you want to get your home insured, you go to an insurance agent and they'll quote you a price. But you won't know exactly how to interpret that. It will always seem like somebody has just invented this price on the fly. But in fact, what companies try to do is figure out the likelihood of exceeding some level of damage to your house and the cost of repairing it over the time you own it. Typically, you insure one year at a time. So they're trying to figure out what your chance 
of suffering earthquake damage is next year and what that would cost. And so if what we need is the price of insurance to be based on the risk of that of payment on that insurance, that's the only way it works. So we have to give them our best estimate of what that is. And to do so, we need to know for your house, we need to know about all the earthquakes, large and small, near and far, which could strike and shake you. And then we need to know something about your house. How fragile or resilient is it? And what is it going to do when shaken at a various level? So all those things get folded up into the analysis, and we do it at a very large scale for large companies. But we're also providing the same information to you freely through the app. The app seems so convenient and so wide-ranging. I can understand why homeowners would benefit from using Tembler. But how do insurance companies and government agencies also benefit from data the app gathers? If we do our job right, we should know whether or not you've retrofitted your house. If you if you have, your house or building is more resilient, and the cost of insurance should be lower because you provided that protection, which is actually also protecting the insurance company because the cost of repairs are going to be lower. In addition, if you've retrofitted your home or building, you've reduced the chance of injury for the occupant. So it's a double benefit. And we need to make sure that that benefit is understood all along the chain, the financial chain of what's called risk transfer, of the spreading of risk from you to the people who are going to uh, provide you that protection. Now, that can also extend to governments. Governments obviously have a lot to lose in a big earthquake. In addition to their very large portfolio of buildings, they're responsible for getting to you the power, water, electricity, sewers that you will need to get up and running again. So governments are vulnerable, and um, we need to help governments foresee what could happen and protect themselves too. So it's not just a matter of an individual homeowner. There is a large fabric of players in this, all of whom, if they're working together, can make recovery fast and make protection strong. You seem to have a unique perspective on earthquake fault lines. Can you tell us more about that? Probably the most important thing I can say is that nearly everything we love about California has been brought to us by the faults. Here I am in the San Francisco Bay Area. There, absent the San Andreas and Hayward Fault, there would be no San Francisco Bay, the only deep water port along the California coastline, and so the wellspring of the gold rush. A bend in the San Andreas thrust up the Santa Cruz Mountains, the spine of the peninsula, and the Marin Headlands. The San Gregorio Fault makes Big Sur big. A blind thrust fault uplifted the Santa Monica Mountains on which the Hollywood sign rests. Palm Springs is there by virtue of the San Andreas and San Jacinto Fault. Catalina and the islands offshore are basically blocks uplifted between active faults. And the Los Angeles Basin itself is an extremely deep pile of sediments that is being squeezed between faults. Wow, I never would have thought about faults that way. Even the word fault sounds bad, but you're right. Faults might cause disasters, but they're also part of the natural process and can create beauty too. 
It's just like how failures shouldn't be frowned upon, but rather seen as learning opportunities to do better in the future. So, if it weren't for the faults, we wouldn't live in this exceptionally beautiful area. It would look like Kansas, with no no harm to Kansas here. We really love the lush environment that it gives us. And so we have to remember that we are drinking from the fruits of the faults every day. And so we have to learn to live with their occasional spoils as befell San Francisco in 1906 and Southern California in 1857. And of course, 1994 in the Northridge earthquake and 1989 in the Loma Prieta earthquake. So these events happen and, and if we can prepare for them, then we can truly enjoy this special place in which we live. It's the faults that make California, California. Everyone has heard of the San Andreas Fault, but is that the most dangerous fault in the state? We all know about the San Andreas, and for good reason. It's the most active fault. It slips at a higher rate than all the other faults in the state. And so, by and large, over the long haul, it's good going to produce more large earthquakes than other faults. But it is by no means the only fault we've got. We have The state is laced with many faults of many orientations. And in 2019, we had an earthquake in eastern, southeastern California, ridge, centered on Ridgecrest, in which two faults ruptured, one a magnitude 6.4. Some 40 hours, hours later, there was a magnitude 7.1. And both of those faults were unknown to us. Big faults that produce large earthquakes, but unknown to us. And it shows you our imperfect ability to find faults and to understand how they work. And these two faults were at a right angle to each other. They were perpendicular to each other. Hmm, I'm thinking, what are the chances that a fault triggers another fault? Does that happen often? And does it affect the community more than an earthquake on a single fault? So one earthquake increase the likelihood of failure on the other one, and it ruptured some number, you know, roughly a day and a half later. Now, is that the only case in the state where we have important faults which might have been overlooked and which have a similar relationship? Unfortunately, it isn't. That's a warning. That is a wake-up call that other cases like this exist. And to pull one out of a hat that would be important the Newport Inglewood Fault, which gave us the 1933 Long Beach magnitude 6.5 earthquake, that ruptures all the way through central Los Angeles, right up to Century City in Beverly Hills. And there it joins the Santa Monica Malibu Fault, which heads west, and the Hollywood Fault, which heads east. So a, a, a situation we could imagine is a large earthquake, let's say a magnitude 7 on the Newport Inglewood Fault, triggering another large earthquake on the Hollywood Fault. And then in that sequence of events, we would have hit Long Beach, um, Marina Del Rey, Century City, Beverly Hills. They would actually get hit twice, once in the first earthquake, once in the second, and downtown Los Angeles. So the, the, the likelihood of ruptures in those faults are much lower than the San Andreas. But the consequences of even a small earthquake on those faults is much higher than the San Andreas. So we need to consider both things, not just the likelihood of rupture, but the proximity. 
when you rupture faults right in the center of the urban area, you can cause a lot more damage than the San Andreas, which for Southern California, fortunately, is generally far from populated areas. So these faults are also a domino effect, where one fault can trigger another and cause an even bigger problem. Is this also the case with Northern California? So let's just kind of pull back and compare Northern and Southern California, not on the basis of their football teams, but on the basis of their faults. So LA is unique in that the San Andreas undergoes a huge bend, a 40 degree bend, and that just mashes up everything. So Southern California has all kinds of faults, thrust faults where one side stacks up against another. We have strike slip faults like the San Andreas and a bunch of others. We have a, a broad kind of pastiche of faulting. It's as if you dropped a big plate glass window and you're sweeping it up and you have all these shards of different sizes and shapes that are being jammed against the San Andreas, basically against the central U.S. continent. We go to Northern California, I think life is a lot simpler. It's not any less hazardous, but it's simpler because the faults are basically parallel or nearly parallel to each other. So from offshore, we have the San Gregorio Fault, then we have the San Andreas Fault, then we pop over the bay and have the Hayward Fault. We go a little inland and we have the Calaveras Fault. So we have basically a five-lane freeway in Northern California. And as we go north, all those lanes stay open and they extend all the way up to Cape Mendocino. So we have a broad, simpler system of strike-slip faults. Whereas in Southern California, we have these thrust faults, we have this big bend, we have a mess. I like the highway metaphor. I can picture that. Let's pivot here back to resilience. A big part of this subject is about recovery, and I'm wondering about the economic side of that. We know that there are calculations being made for how a place of business might be impacted, but with the interconnectivity between companies and their employees, shouldn't businesses be concerned about their employees' home safety as well? Isn't it all connected in a way? Over the last year and a half, we've all been working from home. So imagine you're a business. You previously thought that your earthquake exposure was your building. You know, you put every, all your employees in your building and you need to concern yourself with whether or not your building is sufficiently resilient to earthquake shaking and that nobody will be injured by flying objects in that building. Well, guess what? Over the last year and a half, we haven't even been in that building. Your employees are still working, but they're distributed all around the community. So suddenly, a problem that was really a point problem What's the issue for this building in its location with its proximity to faults and earthquakes has changed. It's now a portfolio. It's, it's, it's a thousand points of light. It's all these locations, the locations of your most important asset, which is not your building. It's your people and they're spread around. So the whole business of understanding corporate risk now looks a lot more like an insurance portfolio because you have to concern yourself with everybody's resilience. If they're damaged in their home, they're not going to work. So the situation has expanded and changed and changed our way of thinking about risk. It is all connected, just like a domino effect. In California, we have other risks besides earthquakes. What about those other risks? 
How can preparedness for a wildfire or flood also play a part in reducing the risk of earthquake damage? Well, we can certainly say that there are there are places in which the needs to protect ourselves from wildfire and earthquakes are very similar. An earthquake shakes the ground and can cause transformers to fall and spark, cables to break and spark, gas mains to rupture and burst into flames. And obviously those are all triggers for wildfire. So even if you say that your goal is to make the state uh, more wildfire safe, you would be actually contributing to earthquake safety if you did so. And vice versa, if you make the state earthquake safe, you're contributing to wildfire safety too. So we should look at where we have these synergies, where strengthening our uh, resilience benefits us against everything we're concerned about. Wow, yet another domino effect. But this time in more of a positive light. Making structures wildfire safe also contributes to earthquake safety. Two for one. Yes, and here's another one. In the San Francisco Bay Area and the, Sa the uh, Sacramento Delta, we have uh, seawalls in the Bay and levees in the Delta, which were built at the turn of the century. And when shaken or when sea level rises are going to crumble. And so solving those problems helps us in both cases. A stronger seawall will protect us in a large Bay Area earthquake on the Hayward or San Andreas Fault. And improved levees will help us in a earthquake along the California uh, coastal range in that area where we have had large earthquakes in the past. So there's another area where one solution to strengthen those uh, water barriers solves two problems, not just one. So if it's all connected, what role should insurance companies and governments play in promoting resilient design? It's kind of, it's, it's remarkable and important to remember that the most of the fire safety measures adopted in large urban areas around the world were promulgated and pushed by insurance companies because they were paying for the cost of fires. London burned down innumerable times. San Francisco burned down in its first uh, four or so years, three times to the ground. But the insurance companies haven't played that same role when it comes to earthquake protections. They have covered earthquake insurance, but they haven't been promoting earthquake safety measures. That's actually today, if anywhere, it's coming from governments that recognize that to get their cities back up and running, they need to minimize the amount of highly damaged or collapsed buildings. So while insurance is playing a role, they aren't playing the kind of role that they traditionally played in making urban areas fire safe. Wait, the insurance companies aren't out in the front of promoting earthquake safety? That's surprising. One would think they would see earthquake insurance as a strong source of revenue in a fault-filled state like California. I know there are faults all across the country, but California, we're kind of famous for ours. You know, for most California home or building owners, that asset is their largest asset and needs to be protected. And the way to protect it is to make it seismically safe. If you're a renter, you don't own that building. But if you're renting a building which won't survive an earthquake, you're taking a, a physical harm risk 
and you're going to find yourself with no place to go. So whether or not you're a renter or a homeowner or a building owner, shelter is the most important thing, particularly after a disaster. And so having shelter that we can count on, that's going to take care of our needs, that won't be interrupted when everybody else's is interrupted, is important for us and allows us to live in this beautiful state without fearing the future. When it comes to taking steps towards being prepared, towards having effective shelter in the event of a natural disaster, how do the dominoes fall there? Does retrofitting an existing weaker building benefit other owners? How can we retrofit more effectively and make our buildings more resilient? Retrofitting an existing weaker structure is one of the most profoundly valuable things you can do in California because it reduces your chance of loss and it increases your safety. So that's a, that's a double win. I want to make an analogy though, because there's another thing that needs to be done. We need to put seismometers in buildings. Until we put seismometers in virtually every public or large building, we won't fully know what happens to those buildings in earthquakes. The reason why it's safer to drive to the airport than to fly across country is because of the black boxes in aircraft. Black box is obviously just a colloquial term for aircraft flight data recorders. Those recorders have been in every commercial plane since 1960. And whenever there's an incident, let alone an accident, they're analyzed and the plane's performance and flight worthiness is improved as a result. All 30,000 commercial airliners have air back boxes in them. And over the last 10 years, black boxes have been put in cars at enormous rates called telematics. 250 million cars on the road have telematics. Telematics in all airplanes and in 250 million cars. I'm kind of shocked that we do not already have seismometers in buildings. I think a lot of people think about this because buildings cannot truly be tested until a disaster strikes. So do we have to wait for the big one to hit to know whether we're going to be safe? What information do we have on how data from black boxes, I mean telematics, has influenced safety in automotive industry? If you drive a 2020 car, you are 5% less likely to suffer a fatal accident than just a 2016 car. Cars are rapidly becoming safer and they're becoming safer because these boxes record all of the actions of the idiots and maniacs on the road and where we go, how fast we're going, how we hit the brake and how we hit the accelerator. And so car designers are making cars smarter and safer. So contrast this with buildings. About 0.1% of the buildings in the United States have black boxes in them. So we're not generating the records that allow us to figure out how best to strengthen buildings when earthquakes occur. And seismometers are pretty cheap today. This is something we should be doing. This is innovation that excites. By putting seismometers in buildings, we can also accelerate our efforts in designing them to be more safe. Evan, this interview with Ross really opened my mind and made me more aware of the domino effect that natural disasters can have on our ability to be better prepared in both prevention and recovery. 
This would really help advance performance-based design. Yes, everything is connected in some way. Earthquakes damage structures, which affect the people who inhabit them and impact their lives. And it stays true with the efforts in mitigation, how wildfire protection will also contribute to earthquake safety. So the game plan seems to be knowing the risks in our buildings and communities and developing effective plans to tackle them. I believe this would be a great step forward in the resilience movement. So who's going to be our next interview? Let's do Jessica Westermeyer's interview next. She's a structural engineer for KPFF. She goes into depth about the technicalities of conducting a resiliency study on buildings, specifically on the Clifford L. Allenby building in Sacramento. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Ross Stein and Tembler, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC and Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into Evan's interview with Jessica Westermeyer, a structural engineer at KPFF. She took part in enhancing the Clifford L. LMB building beyond the code. This building is an 11-story net-zero energy building that houses over a 1,000 government employees.